I came of age in the early 80s at the height of the goth rock movement that had emerged in the UK in the late 70s. Though I was more partial to the ska, reggae, and new wave I heard on college radio and occasionally saw on MTV, I was also drawn to the sound and look of goth music. Quick aside, if you're a fan of South Park, you may recognize this opening song from an episode featuring the goth kids, who should definitely get their own show. Okay, so for the uninitiated, goth is a loose musical movement, subculture, and fashion style that first appeared in England in the early 80s. In the aftermath of the original punk movement, a new wave of bands, Bauhaus, Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, Joy Division, The Sisters of Mercy, and more, combined a love of glam rock, Alice Cooper, David Bowie, horror movies, fetish wear, and gothic literature to create what became the dark side to the bright, shiny new wave pop that then dominated the airwaves. Unlike the macho posturing of 80s heavy metal, which I found misogynistic and dumb, goth bands and music appealed to me. The music was moody and danceable and explored the more existential and darker questions of life and death. Where two-tone molded my emerging political sensibilities and gave me a worldview and an identity, goth spoke to the misunderstood romantic in me who was interested in exploring my shadow self. I viewed goths as a tribe of long-lost musical cousins who, like the rude boys and rude girls that I identified with, had their own unique customs and culture. Being deeply immersed in ska and reggae made me acutely aware when elements of the genre were being employed by non-ska and reggae bands. So when I heard Bella Lugosi's Dead, nicknamed the Stairway to Heaven of the post-punk period, I was immediately drawn to the rhythm section, which was decidedly non-gothic. In fact, it sounded very much like reggae to me, and it was. Hi, I'm Mark Wasserman. Welcome to I Don't Like Reggae, I Love It, a special audio series of the Skaboom podcast that focuses on the historical origins and impact of reggae on popular music that will explore the phenomena and cultural implications of cod reggae. Before I continue, I'm excited to announce that Fonz Music, F-O-N-Z Music, is now sponsoring the podcast. If you are a music fanatic like me, then you are passionate about playing and sharing the music you love through Spotify playlists. Fonz is a brand new way to listen to music on Spotify with others. The Fonz Coaster is a cutting-edge device that allows multiple people to participate in the same Spotify session. That means no more passing your phone around, switching speakers, or asking someone else to put on your favorite song. With the Fonz Coaster and app, all that is taken care of. Just pick up a Fonz Coaster, link your Spotify account through the app, and start queuing and sharing your music. I wish I'd had a Fonz during long van rides on tour with my bandmates when we were arguing about what song to play next. For more information, visit FonzMusic.com and type in the promo code SCABOOM to receive $5 off your first order. As reggae became part of the musical landscape in the 70s, more established white pop and rock artists began to experiment with it. Soon, direct musical influences like dub effects, reggae-style bass and syncopated drums 
began to find their way into popular mainstream music. As more non-reggae artists began to appropriate the sound of reggae and white audiences responded, this new Regatta de Blanc, as the police called their second album, received a less than flattering name, Cod Reggae. It's a harsh but efficient way of describing reggae music reconfigured for a mass audience. But before we get started, you may be asking, what is Cod Reggae? The meaning of the word Cod is thought to have originated in the 19th century and is almost exclusively a British term. Cod in the sense of joke, hoax, leg pull, appears in the early 20th century and features in James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man, quote, some fellows had drawn it there for a cod. Cod also functions as an adjective. Bernard shares language, quotes a politician on Irish TV news saying, quote, that's a cod argument. Everyone knew what they were voting for. So, by definition, cod reggae means faux, joke, or nonsense reggae. Now, Bauhaus are considered the godfathers of goth rock, but what's interesting about them has been their willingness to incorporate and mix different sounds into their songs. Now for the question at hand. Is Bella Lugosi's Dead a cod reggae song? I actually don't think it is, and I'll let the band tell you why. In an interview with Bandcamp Daily in 2018, the band's bassist David Jay said, quote, Robert Del Naja, Massive Attack singer, told me how he loved how Bauhaus weren't trying to be cod reggae, but applying dub intelligently, which made him rethink his whole band. Applying dub intelligently is what sets Bauhaus and Bella Lugosi's Dead apart from many of the other cod reggae songs that I've considered during this series. I think what's key is that members of Bauhaus came into the band with an understanding of and deep appreciation for reggae. David Jay and his brother, drummer Kevin Haskins, were both familiar with ska and reggae, having been to blues dances as young teens. David Jay shared more about those experiences in Northampton where the band members lived and how his bass playing in Bauhaus was influenced by reggae bassist Errol Flabaholt during an interview with Postpunk.com in 2018. Yeah, well, that, was, that certainly was uh, an element that was in the mix for, for musicians of my, my generation. And uh, most of them uh, were exposed to reggae in the early 70s when we were young teenagers, you know, early teens, alongside things like T-Rex and David Bowie and Roxy Music. But reggae was huge in England at that time because of the, um, the immigrants coming in from Jamaica primarily in the 1950s. And then then sort of setting up home in England and then they would have their, their kids, you know, who would follow uh, that music, but they would make it in a way that was influenced by England, especially London. There was a lot of West Indians in London and uh, London was a real stronghold for reggae, but also uh, Northampton was. Northampton was a big Rastafarian centre. Myself, Danny... And Kevin would go down to the uh, we'd go down to these these clubs that were really like exclusively for the Rastas. We were the only literally the only male white faces in the throng, but we we loved that and loved the music. And they would have toasting and these huge sound systems, and they'd have like goat's head soup. It was like real hardcore. They'd all be smoking spliff, ganja. The police would completely leave it alone because it it wouldn't be worth interfering with. So it was like this autonomous free zone. It was a great space. After a few, you know, sort of like 
sideways looks from the uh, clientele, we were quickly accepted. And that was great, you know, like just not feeling any friction. They kind of felt that we, we were cool, you know, and we were just like there to appreciate the music, which we loved. And so that was quite influential on us as a band, you know, it all seeped in. For me as a bass player as well, like reggae was hugely influential. There was a bass player called Errol Flabber Holt, who I noticed he was a session player, but he, his name was all over all the, like my favorite records. So I'd look up the band members and sure enough, like bass, Errol Flabber Holt. So he was a big influence on me, very like dub style, dub style During an interview, with The Quietus in 2011, lead singer Peter Murphy was asked if reggae was an influence on the development of the band's music and reiterated its importance, saying it was, quote, massive. We were listening to toasting music all the time, and David brought in a lot of bass lines that were lead riffs. You can see how those bass lines really formed the basis of the music, especially on Mask. We were more aligned to The Clash than anything else that was going around. The Cure and those people really solidified what became goth, I suppose. But we had no idea how to play reggae. But that was to our advantage because we expanded on that. It was successful on a very cult underground level, and that was very appropriate because our music was never going to be mainstream. It was seminal music. It was brilliant in its originality. The origin story of Bella Lugosi's Dead is fascinating. It turns out that David J., and guitarist Daniel Ash had been watching vampire movies on TV. They talked about what they had seen, and David J. was inspired to write the lyrics to the song. He brought them to a rehearsal and turned them over to Murphy, who came up with the vocal melody. In a fit of inspired creativity, the band ran through the song, coming up with their instrumental parts on the fly, and quickly were aware they had hit on something. A few weeks later, they made a proper recording of the song, that ended up being very similar to that first rehearsal run-through. Recorded in January 1979 at the band's first-ever recording studio session, Bella Lugosi's Dead is nine and a half minutes of vampire dread over syncopated reggae sidestick drums, reggae bass, and dub echo effects. Murphy waits almost three minutes before starting to sing about the passing of the horror film legend best known for his portrayal of Count Dracula, in the 1931 film, Dracula. I am Dracula. There have been numerous remakes, but none have captured the gothic terror of the original. I bid you welcome. Bela Lugosi is Dracula. Murphy noted that the band recorded the track in one take, saying in an interview in 2002, quote, We recorded Bella Lugosi's Dead in the time that it took to play it. No second takes. And when I sang that, I was completely in touch with myself in a way that I've never been before. It was the stuff of dreams. It was magical. After rejections from various labels, it was left to indie label Small Wonder Records to release Bella Lugosi's Dead as a 12-inch single in August 1979. It missed the mainstream chart, but remained on the independent listings for over two years. David J. shared the story about how the band was convinced not to edit the nine-and-a-half-minute-plus version down. We were shopping it around. Everybody was, was telling us it was too long to be a single. You know, it was like nine-and-a-half minutes. 
And uh, the only guy who really got it was Pete Stennett of Small Wonder Records. And by this time, I mean, we'd been taking it around to all the, all the labels and every, all of them said the same thing. It's really interesting and it's unique, but it's too long for a single. So we were actually starting to like second guess ourselves and thinking, maybe they're right, you know. <laughs> and when Pete wanted to put it out, we said, should we edit it? He said, no way. And he used the example of the Velvet Underground's Sister Ray. He said, it's just like Sister Ray. You want to hear every second of it. It's, this is a, a classic. It's a future classic, he said. So no, <laughs> don't edit it. So it, he was very wise there. Its cult status was cemented by Bauhaus's memorable rendition of the song during the opening scene of Tony Scott's 1983 film The Hunger, starring one of the band's key inspirations, David Bowie. Here's the original version as it was recorded that night in January 1979.
This song earned the band a dark and mysterious reputation, but it wasn't the first or last time they flirted with the sounds of ska and reggae. In fact, the band recorded a ska-influenced song called Harry, named after the lead singer of Blondie, during the same January 1979 sessions that they recorded Bella Lugosi's Dead. Have a listen to Harry. Bauhaus also recorded the post-punk meets dub reggae song She's in Parties, released in 1983, which also features some decidedly reggae-sounding melodica, and it's a personal favorite of mine.
During this series, I'll be taking a deep dive into well-known and obscure COD reggae tracks, including Dreadlock Holiday by 10CC and more. If you've listened and received some value from this episode, then please help support the podcast for as little as $3 per month on Patreon. Supporters get access to exclusive content like special episodes of this series and advanced excerpts from my book, Ska Boom, An American Ska and Reggae Oral History, which will be available on July 4th, 2021, and have a pre-sale starting around Memorial Day. Just go to patreon.com backslash Podcast for more information. Thanks for listening and take care.